Amen. As you're seated, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we're looking at Mary's song. And so this whole Advent Christmas season, uh, our theme has come from Luke chapter 19, where Jesus tells Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. And what Luke's going to do all throughout his gospel is you could call his gospel a symphony of salvation, where he's singing this song of salvation. In chapter 1 and 2, he gives us this whole series of maybe call them the original Christmas carols, because they're original songs that celebrate the salvation that is coming. And so this morning, we're going to look at Mary's Christmas song. The song that she sings. And our goal, or my goal for you this morning, is to have her song become your song. The way she celebrates and said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And so we want that to be the, the song of, uh, of all of us this Christmas and this morning. And, you know, one of the hard things about Christmas is that the, uh, Christmas is a time where we celebrate and expect certain emotions. So it's a season of joy. It's a season of peace. It's a season of goodwill towards all men. And, but the, the challenge with those emotions is those aren't things you can purchase. You can't purchase joy. You can't manufacture it. You know, these things are gifts that you either, uh, that you have to receive. True joy is a gift and it comes down from above. So we're going to ask the Lord to help us to be able to experience these type things. So as we go through it, let's read it, and then we're going to set the stage, and then we're going to hear, hear the music, hear the song. So we'll start in 39 when she visits Elizabeth. <coughs> In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned home. 
So let's first, let's set the, the scene, the setting for uh, the song. So this story begins with a teenage girl making a pretty, we might say, uh, ill-advised journey. So in those days, Mary arose as soon as she hears that she's pregnant and her aunt Elizabeth is pregnant. She goes down with haste, energy, purpose. And it says she goes down uh, or goes into the hill country to a town of Judah. That's about 60 miles through the mountains. If you've ever been to Israel, this is desert, rocky, difficult territory. And it sounds like she takes off and goes alone. And so it begins with this dangerous journey, but she's moving with this sense of purpose, this sense of energy. And what I find so fascinating is Mary instantly hears she's pregnant, and she hears her aunt is pregnant, and her instant response is, I have to be there for her. Not, I need people to come to me, but I have to be there for her. And then did you notice there's this back and forth um, you know, in many ways, Luke chapter 1 and 2 is like a musical because it says that when she comes, Elizabeth let out a loud cry. It's a song. So, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy about musicals is how every interaction turns into a song. And you're just like, what world are they living in where you just start singing about the snow falling outside of your, you know. But that's this world. So Mary comes to Elizabeth and Elizabeth bursts out in song and says, blessed are you among women and celebrates Mary's coming and says that the Holy Spirit descended and the baby leaped for joy. So this beautiful, joyful song. But what I find so interesting about the beginning is that every stage in Mary's life, she has someone with her. She's always with someone. And here Mary knows that what she needs is she needs her aunt. She needs somebody who's going to give her wisdom. Somebody's going to give her support. Somebody's going to give her perspective. But what's so beautiful about the relationship is, you know what Elizabeth needs? She needs her niece. She needs somebody who's going to give her energy and life and presence and joy. And you see this beautiful intergenerational dependence. And I think one of the sad things just about our world now it's, it affects the church, but it just affects every aspect of our world, is that we're so generationally segmented. I mean, I don't think we fully realize how if you're, all right, how can I say, if you're in the um, experienced age bracket, how much you need the joy and the energy and life of those in the less experienced age bracket. And those in the less experienced age bracket are not fully aware of how much they need the wisdom and the perspective and the guidance of those in that experienced age bracket. We need both of them. Both needed each other. It wasn't just that Mary needed her or Elizabeth needed Mary. They both needed each other. And I think oftentimes we're aware of the things we need, but maybe not, or not as aware of the things that others need around us. You know, one Adam Grant, who's an organizational psychologist, talks about that we can be in a world of givers or takers. And we live in a world of takers, where people are very aware of what they need from others, but often are not nearly as perceptive of what others need from them. I read a while back an interesting study that was done in uh, Japanese prisons, 
where they started having the prisoners every single day journal a different kind of question prompt that was something related to um, how was it or is it hard to be your wife? How is it hard to be your parent? How is it hard to be your boss? And what they were trying to do, and they actually found a pretty remarkable change, is just even having that perspective shift, because everyone in that context was well aware of the way they had been wronged, but were not nearly as aware of the way they had wronged others. And what I find fascinating is this is mutual dependence. They both need one another. And when Jesus comes, he creates this remarkable fellowship. So if you're a Mary, if you're in her stage of life, do you know how much you need Elizabeth in your life? And if you're Elizabeth, are you aware of how much you need Mary's in your life? So they come together. And then notice the singer of the song. So Mary, we talked about last week who she was, but then she sings this song. And just recap, remember, she's a teenager. She's very young. Uh, she's from a backwoods town in Israel. She's poor. Um, but then her song that she sings, I mean, her song by every measure is a masterpiece. It's one of the great songs in all of scripture. It's one of the great songs in kind of world history. And the beauty of it, it's built on the framework of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. But then every line has echoes of different psalms woven into that framework of Hannah's song. So what she does, every single line is an echo of a psalm that she's taken snippets to and has, has woven together into this beautiful song. It's, it's remarkable. And so you hear, you have this, this child who, I mean, since she doesn't have status, she doesn't have wealth, she doesn't have kind of formal academic education, but she's able to produce this just masterpiece. In fact, one of the things that aggravates me most, this is a soapbox I will not get on, but even in reading academic commentaries, often uh, uh, theologians will look, uh, turn their, oh, what's the word, their no, snooty nose down on Mary and say, well, there's no way an uneducated teenager could have written something so beautiful, so sophisticated. And I just wonder, it reminded, I had, uh, when I was in college, I worked at uh, the Benjamin Harvey Hills home, so it was the largest housing project in, in West Georgia, and be working uh, with tutoring uh, with the kids, and I had to stick in the middle school area, because anytime we got over about seventh grade math or spelling, I was out of my league, so I actually couldn't help anyone. And one of the students that I developed a, a relationship with, he was in middle school, and uh, he couldn't read. And so had some, obviously, challenges in school, but and would always kind of play this, oh, I'm so dumb, I can't do this, kind of defeatist card. So we were trying to get him to read. But what was amazing about this kid is he had every single word to every single Tupac song ever written, memorized. And we used to play this game because I could throw out any two words from any song and then he could just go. So I could say, Callie Love. And he'd be to my true thug, picture me now, still down for that death row sound. And he could just roll with the song. And you could say anywhere, or I could say, baptized in eternal fire. And they go, mmm, 
Lord, I suffered through many years, shed so many tears, I've lost so many peers. And see, this, this music, he didn't just have every word memorized. This music was the soundtrack of his life. And it articulated for him how he viewed and saw and felt about the world. And here's a 14-year-old kid who can't read, but he's got every song memorized. And you look at Mary, the, what, what shaped the soundtrack of her life was the Psalms. She had them internalized and memorized, and they gave her words to understand her life and her world. And I just wonder, maybe we expect too little of our kids. Uh, so that's what Mary, she had them internalized, and it just comes out. All right, now let's hear her song. So the way it begins is a song where her spirit and soul is going to rejoice. It's going to magnify God, her, uh, her Lord, and rejoice in God, my Savior. Basic structure, 47 through 49, she celebrates what God has done to his servant in the singular. Key word there is me. What he's done, my soul, my spirit, my Savior. He's called me blessed, things for me. So she celebrates what he's done for her. Then the central part, 50 through 53, she's going to celebrate what he's going to do in general, what he does. This is who he is. And then 54 and 55, she returns to celebrate what he's done for his servant. But now the servant is not her individually. It's his, his, the servant Israel, his people. So the way I want us to kind of unpack this is she's going to magnify God for three things. She's going to celebrate, all right, what has he done with his eyes? And then what has he done uh, with his arm? And then what has he said with his mouth? So eyes, arm, mouth. So look first, what has he done with his eyes? 48, 49, or she celebrates, and then 48, 49, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So she's celebrating the fact that he sees. And in him, him seeing, he has done something great for her. First, he sees. The first thing she celebrates is that he sees. And if you're going to have a Christmas this year where you celebrate and your soul magnifies the Lord and you rejoice in the salvation he's brought, first thing you got to know is that he sees. And you think about it. I mean, this is a teenage girl who asked the basic existential question that every teenager and every person in this room has asked at some point in their life. Does anybody see me? Does anybody care that I am here? Does anyone know that I exist? And her life has been anchored in the grace of God, and then that grace encourages her to know that he sees me. And so maybe this Christmas, the thing you need to know, maybe this past year you've had tears fall on your pillow because you don't think anyone sees, and no one knows. If you're going to have a merry Christmas, if you're going to sing her song, you need to celebrate the fact that he sees. So he sees, do you know this? And then on the flip side, he sees, do you do this? You know, we now are his body, and the way he sees others is through us. So one of the dangers is that we can become so internally focused that we miss seeing those around us. 
Do you see those around you? Do you see them struggling? Do you see them hoping? Do you see them hurting? Do you see them uh, celebrating? He sees. So she celebrates that. But not only does he seize, he supplies. No, it says, he has done great things for me. And then in the context, what that great thing is, is he has supplied his Holy Spirit to overshadow her and indwell her. And if you're a Christian this morning, the same reality that transformed her life has transformed your life. That's what uh, the Holy Spirit does. He overshadows us and then indwells us and transforms us. So he supplies, he has supplied his spirit to her. And you notice as all throughout chapter one, it's so fascinating to see the activity of the Holy Spirit breaking in. So the Holy Spirit will break in and, and overshadow Mary and dwell with her. The Holy Spirit will break in, in now and cause John to, to leap for joy even in the womb. And the Holy Spirit will break in and cause Zechariah to celebrate and sing. The Holy Spirit is coming and he's bringing uh, joy and life. So if your soul is going to magnify the Lord this Christmas, you have to know that God sees and he supplies the needs of his people. So that's what he does with his eyes. He sees. But then notice what he, has he done with his arm. He, this is the great reversal. Starting in verse uh, 51. He has shown strength with, with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. So there's three great reversals that she's going to celebrate. Uh, And it's all revolved around the humble being brought up and the proud and the self-satisfied being brought down. He's going to, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And what she's celebrating is this remarkable reversal. You know, these things that everybody in the world wants. Everybody wants intellect or power or wealth. And these things have been reversed. You know, I find it intriguing. I don't know if you notice, oh, of course you notice in different stores where, you know, self-checkout has become a thing. And uh, uh, retailers are trying to weigh the balance of the convenience that it brings and offset the cost because it's, uh, it's pretty easy to... Uh, to shoplift. So they're trying to find all these different ways to stop shoplifting at the self-checkout aisle. Now, I don't know if you saw this past week, a uh, police officer from Polk County uh, was fired because he got caught running a whole string of uh, thefts at the Walmart self-checkout line. And one of the primary strategies, as well, you'll notice you go through now, you're using the bar, not price tags aren't on the things. You're using barcodes from the boxes of things, so it can't shift them. But one of the primary strategies was to, to swap out price tags. So it happens most often like in, in, in the meat aisle. And so this happens at public. So people will take the, uh, you know, they'll try to peel the price tag off like the hot dogs and then stick it on the prime rib. And so we're getting ribeyes for $3.99. And so that's, that's the strategy. You, you, you switch the price tags around. And do you realize we live in a world where Satan has gone through the world and he switched all the price tags? So now we think these things that are so expensive and really worth having aren't. And the things that are expensive and are really worth having, we think they're cheap. You know, C.S. Lewis says, you know, there's things in your life right now 
that you utterly ignore and don't ever think about, but if you lost it, you would leverage everything you had to get it back. See, the price tags have been switched. And this is what Mary's celebrating. There's this great reversal where now all those who celebrate and they're so proud of their intellect, they've been brought down and they're so proud of their power. They've been brought down. They're so proud of their wealth. They've been brought down. Verse 51, the pride of intellect. You know, all these things that she's celebrating being reversed, all those things are God's good gift to us. So intellect, the mind, that's God's gift to you. I mean, two of the greatest gifts you've been given is your brain and your Bible, and God wants you to use them. But what she's celebrating is people use their mind not to help, not to serve, not to enlighten, but to slash and to cut and to destroy. Power is a gift, but power is meant to use to serve and to build up instead of exploit. Wealth is a gift, but it's not meant to use for selfish, self-satisfied, self-centered things. And so she celebrates That line, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Love this line from one of Augustine's sermons, the 4th century uh, African bishop. And he says, who are the hungry here? I'll tell you. They're the humble. They're the needy. Who are the rich? They're the proud, the pompous, the self-important. And here, you don't have to look very far to find them. You can look around and you see them. Here, I will show them to you now at one and the same temple where one of those rich who come and they're sent sent away empty and one of those poor who's filled with good things. And then he quotes the parable that Jesus tells about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector who come to the temple. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector. He says, here, look, observe that rich man over there. He's filled with himself, and he's belching out the undigested food of his pride. He's intoxicated with himself. And God, he says, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over there. He says, that's the, that's the rich. He says, but who are the, who are the hungry? He says, come. Come, all you poor men, come along, you hungry tax collector. I'll show you. Rather, come. No, 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 actually stand where you are. Do you see the tax collector there? Do you see him standing a long way off? Ah, he's standing a long way off, but the Lord is drawing the humble. Do you see him? He does not dare lift up his eyes to heaven. Yet where he will not lift up his eyes, he has placed his heart, and he cries out for mercy. And he receives it and goes away full. So what matters? What matters is grace. What matters is mercy. What Mary is celebrating is these things that we love and desire, money, power, possessions. They cannot substitute for his presence. And he sees with his eyes and he acts with his hands. And one of the things he does with his hands is he lifts up the humble. He lifts up the wounded. He lifts up the weary. And all throughout scriptures it celebrates. Don't let the strong man boast in his strength or the wise man boast in his wisdom or the rich man boast in his wealth. What should we boast in? We boast in the name of the Lord our God. And Mary is celebrating this reversal. And normally I like to always try and get to the cross at the end of the sermon. Uh, 
But here you can see she's celebrating this great reversal, but she actually doesn't know the fullness of the way that reversal is going to come about. And in chapter 2 at the end, Simeon reminds her that a sword is going to pierce her own soul. But it's actually not until she gets to the cross where she's going to see this remarkable reversal, where he's going to reverse the pride of the intellect. And at the cross, he's going to give us true wisdom. So if you're going to have a, if you're going to sing Mary's song, you have to go to the cross to receive real wisdom that's both humbling and affirming at the same time. And he's going to reverse the pride of power because it's this pathway through his weakness that he's going to unleash real power. And the gift of uh, the gift of the Merry Christmas is that you understand where true power comes from. And now I can do all things, not through my own intellect or strength, but it's through Christ who strengthens me. And he's going to reverse the pride of riches and show us where real riches, heavenly riches, spiritual riches can be found. So if you're going to magnify the Lord of your salvation, these things need to be reversed in your heart and your mind and in your life. So that's what he does with his arm. He lifts up the humble. And then notice what she celebrates, what he does with his mouth. 54, 55, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. It says he has remembered his mercy. He has remembered his promises. He's remembered it's the power of his word. He has helped us. He has come to us. He redeemed us from slavery. He provided for us in the wilderness. And just as a patient lovingly takes, or a physician takes the patient under his care, he nursed us. And as a king defends his people from his enemies, he's fought for us. And just like a tender mother cares for her child. He has uh, cared for us. And what she's going to celebrate is that he has been true to his promises, even though we wait. You know, one of the remarkable things about Mary and Joseph, their family line, they were in the family line of David. And they, I mean, that would carry tremendous dignity. I mean, this is a regal bloodline. And yet they had fallen on hard times. And it had been almost 700 years since they, their family had seen that kind of glory. I mean, think about it. That would almost be like if you were directly related to George Washington, and then 500 years from now uh, is the timing we're thinking. And so she, they remembered these promises to our family, to our people, and she's held on to them and holding out hope. She's, she's gripped them, and they've given her perspective, and they've given her power. Reminded the quote from John Bunyan. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and he... Uh, um, was a Puritan pastor who uh, was actually, he was put in prison. He had, was put in prison for 10 years. Uh, and all he had to do was to, um, that's where I'm like, he had to uh, not preach the gospel and they would let him out. But he refused to not preach when he 
got out and he stayed in prison for 10 years and it was hard obviously on his family. He had a blind daughter that uh, special needs that needed care. And as he talked about that time in prison, he says, I tell thee friend, God hath allowed me to lay hold of such precious promises that I would not have out of the Bible for all of the gold and all of the silver that could lie between London and York piled to the stars. So here's somebody that has so been gripped by and so gripped certain promises in the Bible that they have become so precious to him, he would not trade them for anything in the world. Do you have promises like that? Are there promises like that that you have so clung to that you would not have out of your life for all of the cash that you could stack between Lake Nona and Orlando piled to the stars? And if you do, do you know how rich you are? That is lavish riches, the precious power of knowing the Lord is my shepherd, the power of knowing that he will do immeasurably more than all we ask or think, the power of knowing that I can come to him whenever I'm weary and heavy laden and he will give me rest. Do you have promises like that? You cling to those and that's how you can have a Merry Christmas. That's how her song can become your song. So this Christmas, if you feel alone or abandoned, he sees. And then knowing he sees, you can sing for joy. But you root your joy not in who you are, but in who he is. You can read through the whole middle section, and I'll have notice all the he's. He who is mighty, his mercy, he is shown, he is scattered, he is brought, he is exalted, he is filled, he is sent away, he is helped, he is spoken. It's those he's that fuel our joy. So do you want to sing like this this Christmas? Then ask him to help you get caught up in who he is. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the gift that you see. So I pray if there's anyone here in this room this morning and they, uh, they feel alone, they feel abandoned, they feel like no one notices, no one sees, pray that you would give them the gift of knowing that you see. Pray if there's anyone here who feels disoriented and are just uh, not understanding how life is supposed to go. I pray that you help us not to go through the world with the price tags all switched up. Help us to understand and experience the great reversal that you brought to know what true wisdom is, true power is, true riches are. And I pray that you would help us, help us all to have certain promises in our life that we know and we hold and we cling to and that they animate us and they empower us and they give us perspective when we need it. They give us courage when we need it. They give us uh, comfort when we need it. We pray for all these things and ask them in Christ's holy name. Amen.